Okay. Give me a couple of thumbs. This is the most important thumb, and there's the secondary or the, the less important. Okay. Before I get started here, I need to say a few things. I'm not doing very well. I mean, I wish I was, but I'm not. On Wednesday, uh, this week, the 30th of August, I have a enterography where they're going to do a CT scan on my, my stomach, trying to figure out what's causing this chronic gastritis. So I will be back, I hope, September 10th. And maybe some of my medical issues will, uh, at least I'll know what they are now. I believe that that's what we're trying to accomplish. I was in the emergency room on Tuesday. I don't know. I told you guys that, right? Yeah, I was in. I was hospitalized last Tuesday, so they thought perhaps I had a perforated bowel or colon because of the operation. I had a colonoscopy and I had tremendously intense pain, and they thought, well, maybe there's a perforation. There wasn't, but they still have no idea what's really going wrong with me. So it's going to be week by week, I'm afraid, unfortunately. And I just took some very powerful drugs 15, or no, 20 minutes ago. So we'll see how I do. Were you on morphine before Cliffside, or did Cliffside put you on morphine? Right? In our new motto. Okay, let's see how what, what, what I can accomplish today. Uh, August the 27th, 2023, lecture discussion number 201 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, Genesis 15. And what I'm doing, I, and I hope those of you who are listening to me, and it's amazing how many listeners I have sometimes. I'm stunned by it. And that's because of Kurt and Dave and Ben, and I don't remember all the people that were involved in that, but it's just been incredible. I'm, I'm gathering information. It's my style. I get as much information as I can get and then figure out what it all means as best I can. And I, I think that is the absolute best method for Bible study. And being that my last lecture was August 6th, number 200, I probably better, it'd be prudent uh, to recollect some of the central matters of contention that I established. And hopefully a plurality of you will remember the hedge kiss symbiosis. Put that on the board because I'm not speaking very well. We have this hedge related to the kiss. Okay, I put that on the board last week. I need to do it again. And that, as you know, or hopefully you remember, that's Job 1.10, that's Matthew 26.49, that's Luke 22.48, and that's Luke 7.48. Okay? And yes, uh, for those of you who are questioning, I am proposing, I'm actually advocating for the satanic hedge lie of Job 1.10 to be directly attached to the motive of Satan and Judas delivering Christ to the crucifixion with a kiss. So I'm saying the hedge and the kiss have a relationship that is absolutely obvious, at least to me. And I hope it's going to be obvious to you because I think it's very important. And my my biblical... uh, uh, references of John 13, 26 through 27, and I think that re- removes all dispute, at least it does in my opinion, uh, that Satan has combined with Judas. And that's extraordinary, Satan combining with somebody. The only person that Satan has ever entered in his entire existence is Judas. No other person has ever been entered by Satan. So that makes Judas especially significant, Genesis 3:15, Revelation 13, 1 through 4, and Acts 1, 25. Now, therefore... If I'm right, the sop, I've got the sop involved in this, and I also have the cup. So my equation is beginning to get bigger. 
the sop, John 13, 26, along with the cup of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 39 through 42, they become items that I have to include or should be included with the hedge and the kiss. Because the, uh, really quickly, the honored piece of bread is the sop at the Passover meal. And it's given to the most honored guest at that meal by the head of the table, if you will, or the head of the meal. So the most honored guest gets the most honored piece of bread, the dipped sop. And we've gone over that before. And, and as you know, and, and that person, the honored guest that got the honored sop was, of course, Judas, John thirteen twenty six. And it's not coincidental that Satan enters Judas immediately subsequent to Judas accepted or accepting the venerated piece of bread. Once he gets the honored sop, he that's when Satan goes. Satan and Judas both knew that Christ would use the occasion of the Passover to dip the sop. They knew that that would happen. Let me ask a simple question. It's not their first rodeo. How many, how many Passover meals have they gone through? This is the last one. You have to count your Passovers in the Gospels and figure out how many they've gone through, but this is the last one. And, and Judas is getting the sop. Now, what's the obvious question? Does he always get the sop? Has he gotten the sop every single time? What would be most likely? It would be most likely that that's how it went. Why would Judas always get the sop? Then becomes the question. Why not some of the others? Were they all used to Judas always being in the honored position of every Passover meal that Christ officiated? And again, Christ knew that Judas was going to get it, and he knew, of course, that Satan was nearby because he has that capability, right? He's got himself in the flesh. My initial point, yea, a point already, is that the hedge kiss symbolism is infiltrated. It's not just the hedge kiss. It's also the cup and the sop. And thus, I have a mathematical equation because there is always mathematical equations, right? By now, everyone should all scream out, we have math because there's always math. Hedge plus kiss divided by cup plus sop equals Genesis, I'm sorry, equals Job 1.6 times Psalms 10.6 plus Psalm 10.8 and Psalm 10.13. The question, of course, is Psalm 10.1. So I'm asking a question, and the answer is the hedge, the kiss, the sop, and the cup. Let me say that again. I have this relationship between the hedge and the kiss, absolutely. And I have a relationship between the cup and the sop. And the four of those brings me to Job 1.6. And I also Psalms 10.6 and Psalms 10.8 and Psalms 10.13 because of the question that is Psalms 10.1. What is that question? Do you remember? I've said it many times. I'm going to keep saying it because of how important it is. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? That's the question of 10-1 Psalms. Why do you hide in times of trouble? There's two questions there. Allow me to interject the obvious. Job precedes Psalms. So it's Job and Psalms in the order of the Bible. And the order of the Bible is significant. It's not arbitrary. It wasn't slapped slapped together. It was ordained this way. It's not an accident that Job is right in front of Psalms. And Psalms adds incredible context to the information of Job 6, which Job, I'm sorry, Job 1.6, because Job 1.6 is astonishingly important. Job 1.6 sets up so much material, it, it is impossible to let it sit there and not recognize that. Psalm 10.1 raises the question of evil, essentially asking, why does God stand back, stand afar back, and allow evil for 7,000 years? 
Acts 14.16, 2 Peter 3.8. Why does he do that? Job 1.11, Job 2.5 present the same question as Psalm 10.1. Why does God stand back and allow all this evil? What's the reason for him doing that? He has to have a reason. What is his reason? You should have worked all that out by now, especially if you're my age. Jesus Christ, Revelation 19.11-16 and Revelation 1.12-17. Jesus Christ hid his true appearance, what he really looks like. You have to go to Revelation 19 and Revelation 1 to see what he actually looks like. That's why we have these pictures by that wonderful artist that displays his actual appearance. But he hid his true appearance for 33 plus years. The omnipotent God of all creation, he added humanity and hid himself as an infant. He was hiding as an infant. He was hiding as a child. He hid as a carpenter. Why is he doing that? Why do you hide in times of trouble? He psalmed him one. He chose carpenter for obvious reasons. I hope you know what it is. Dave knows what it is. It's because of the crimson worm. Jonah 4.7 and Psalm 22.6. The crimson worm that attaches itself to wood. Wood being a symbol in the Bible for humanity. Why does God hide and try... I'm sorry. Why does God hide in times of trouble? A fantastic question of Psalm 10.1. Why does he do it? Why does he stand far off in times of trouble? Why this connection? Why does God stand far off and hide in times of trouble? What's the obvious? Those two are together. He's standing afar off and he's hiding. They're not the same. Why is he way out? And I'm not saying way out, but he is in in the secret place, right? Matthew 6. Why is he in the secret place? When did he go into the secret place? And why, when times of trouble come, does he hide? Why is he hiding in times of trouble? Why is he standing afar off? Those are the questions that have to be dealt with. And Job 1.6 begins that process. 1.1 through 1.6 for sure. Feel free to wrestle with the problem and ask the most obvious of the obvious questions. When did the times of trouble begin? Because he hides at times of trouble. Yes, he hides when times of trouble. When did the times of trouble begin? And why did they begin? What caused the times of trouble? That's Genesis 3-4 maybe? Is it Ezekiel 28-15? Is it Isaiah 14-13-14? Those are Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Those are the falls of Satan, right? That's where Satan fell. Genesis 3-4 is when, when the woman fell. And Adam fell. It seems to me that one could conclude that Genesis 6-5-11 through which is only evil continually. The earth is filled with murder. All flesh is perverted. All flesh is corrupted, except for Noah and some of his family. Noah is the uncontaminated man, Genesis 6, 9-12. That word does not mean righteous. It means uncontaminated. The Hebrew word is tamen. Of who else in the Bible can it be said that he was uncontaminated? Who else besides Noah is uncontaminated? Was Job uncontaminated? How about Adam? Obviously Christ uncontaminated, correct? Clearly Genesis 6, 5 through 11 would qualify as times of trouble. It was a time of continual, non-stop murder, wickedness, and evil. Man's every thought was continually evil. So that is, that's qualifying as times of trouble, obviously, duh. 
And being predisposed to diversions, as you know, I should put a mark. Lori told me to erase the marks, but I should put a mark up there now, but I won't because I have turned around and I took my drugs at 3.50. So you have to be very careful here. I'm not dancing today like normal. Okay, it's never normal. Being predisposed to diversions, or as I would describe as delightful, excursionary, parenthetical adventures. How does the absolutist, extremist, predestined Calvinist explain Psalm 10.1? How does he explain that? Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? How does predestination explain that? those questions? These are not two elementary questions. These are incredibly complex. The whole Bible is incredibly complex. Can anyone disagree that God, God hides himself in the secret place? That God is afar off seemingly. Now he's omnipresent. And the Holy Spirit is here with us. But when that Psalm 10.1 was written, the Holy Spirit hadn't been uh, directed yet by Christ. If the extremist predestination theory is correct, and it isn't, why would God hide in the predestined condition? If, if predestination is, is in fact, has occurred, what is the reason for God standing afar off and hiding? Numbers 4, 5 through 6, the veil, whenever it was transported through the wilderness or through Israel, was always hidden. It was veiled. Why was the, was the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant, why was it covered in skins and hidden from the people? If all things are caused by God, which is what they say, especially if God decrees evil, they all say that God created, they don't all say it, but most of them say it. If God, that he is the decreer of evil, why does then he, why, ah, excuse me. If God causes all things, especially if God causes evil, then why does he hide from his initiative? Why would he hide from it? If he's the one, if he's the source of it, and he's doing this, as every all these folks seem to claim, and they don't seem to claim, they absolutely claim it with a tremendous amount of vigor, why does he hide from his own initiative? Does God hide from the fallen angels? Job 1, he definitely doesn't. Genesis 3.15, he's not hiding from Satan. 1 Peter 3.19, Christ is proclaiming something which we hopefully everybody knows what he proclaimed when he went to visit the angels that are in prison. Luke 8.26 and 40 demonstrate God speaking to all of the angels. Satan has unchallenged access to the throne room of God right now and he has it until Revelation 12. So God is not hiding from Satan. Job 1 obviously proves that. Satan accuses Christ Matthew 14, Luke 4, I'm sorry, Matthew 4, Luke 4, and Satan kisses Christ. So he's, Christ is not hiding from Satan. So what is being said in Psalm 10, 1? Why would God hide from his own predestination? What would be the point of that? I'm asking for a friend if I had one. God hides for a reason. He has a reason. Absolutely he does. You should be able to figure it out. I hope that I'm urging you to figure it out. I hope that you're figuring out how I'm making you figure it out. He has his own reason. Guess what? One reason that's not his, and that's predestination. 
He has a reason, and it's not predestination for those of you who require uh, clues to where I'm headed. Definitive statements. I forgot to mention in lecture number 200 the differential equations describe time and motion and free will in the, in the creation, much to the joy and the delight of Henri Bergson. He figured that out when he, when he argued with Einstein in 1915. Anyway, hedge and kiss. Sakta, sakta, sorry, S-A-K-T-A in the Hebrew. That's the word for hedge in Job 1.10. How many times do you suppose in the whole Old Testament is this word S-A-K-T-A, sakta? How many times is it used in the entire Bible? Just pay, take a guess. You can do it. Raise your hand. One time. Never raise your hand that hedge is described in this Hebrew word once. I would expect that. And again, the answer is one. Job 1.10 Have you heard me say that the hedge accusation by Satan is effectively predestination? That's what I have said. Okay, let's make no... Bones about that. Let's put it right on the table. I believe the hedge accusation that Satan makes in 1.10 of Job is the same thing as the predestination accusation that has been being made today. And don't get me wrong. I'm running out of time. Seventy years old, I'm really sick. I'm getting sicker and not better. And so I'm trying to get things in there. Satan accuses God of, of predestination by saying that you've put a hedge around Job. That's what he's saying. And so I think it's very important that that, that, be, that gets out there. Mankind and animals and angels, according to the predestination position, have no freedom of will. That's what predestination, predestination says. There is no will and differential equations are, are, are useless, even though they describe motion and free will and time. Without free will, there's only automation. Said that hundreds of times. There's mechanization. Both are lifeless. God declares that He created living souls. He does not say, "I created machines." He would have said, "I created machines that are predestined." If He if He made machines that are predestined, He did not do that. What did He do instead? He did the absolute opposite of that. He said, "I have I have created living souls." Genesis 1.20, Genesis 121, 124, 130, 217, 215, 715, 7.22, 6.17, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 6.19, 
Genesis 1, 24 through 31, and therefore Genesis 2, 7 through 25. Now why? What is he doing now? Can he ever stick to one subject? Apparently he can't. He's going to add stuff all the time, isn't he? I'm always going to gather information. I'm always going to make the equation longer. That's the plan. Recently, a gentleman named Gary, and I'm not sure, I'm sorry, Gary, I don't remember where you're from, but Gary wrote to me wanting my opinion on the Hebrew recurrence of Genesis 2, 7 through 25 as it applies to Genesis 1, 24 through 31. Gary simplified the question beautifully. He said, by asking if Genesis 2, 7 through 25 fits into the sixth day of Genesis 1, 24 through 31. His commentary on the issue was this. He said, 24 hours seems far too brief. Because there's a lot of information that goes into that sixth day. Again, the recurrence that explains the sixth day is Genesis 2, 7 through 25. And Gary's position, or he was asking, does all of this happen in one 24-hour period? And this, of course, is fantastic. And I wrote him back. I, I actually was having difficulty that day, and I, I, I answered a question he didn't ask. And then, and then he wrote me back and said, you didn't answer my question. And I went, oh, he's right. I, didn't, uh, I wasn't able to concentrate during that particular period. But his, his comment, 24 hours seems far too brief. Wow, what a fantastic question that is. Because the subject now becomes what? He mentioned what? What did Gary throw? What bone did he throw at me? Yes, yes, 24 hours. What's 24 hours? It's time. Absolutely. You can see me now. I start to grin because we're back to Henry Bergson, Henry. We've got time, motion, and free will in the sixth day. Yay. Of course, I've said this before. It's amazing what happens in that sixth day. But uh, this is an opportunity for me to go further. Where there, Let me say it as many times as I can. Where there is time in motion. So if you're out and about and you say, what time is it? And you're moving while you do that. Well, time in motion is filled to the brim with free will. Time, motion. Whenever there's time in motion, there is free will. And the Bible, Genesis 121, I'm sorry, 124.31. Excuse me. It's just nothing. If it's just got nothing but time and motion and free will in it. It's just buried in it. It's overflowing with time, motion, and free will. So Gary put that on a on a plate for me. Adam exhibits free will in Genesis two nineteen through twenty. God brings before Adam every animal, every animal to see what Adam would name each animal. Genesis two nineteen. When I say each and every animal, I get some pushback at that. They said the Bible doesn't say that. It could be a general statement. Yeah, how can you prove it's each and every animal? You dumb HTRP pretending person. How many animals did God bring? How long? Oh, yay. How much time did it take for Adam to do that? That's what Gary's asking. How much time, how long did this naming by Adam take? How many animals were there? Why does God do this? He even says, I'm going to bring the animals to him to see what he will name them. 
I've covered that before. Why does God do that? And how does this naming thing connect to Revelation 2.17 and John 6.35? Christ says in Revelation 2.17 that He's going to give to those who... Let me put this on the board while I'm ranting. Overcome. This is what He's going to do. He will give to those who overcome the hidden manna to eat. Do you see now back to Psalm 10.1? Sorry. He's going to give the hidden manna. Why is there hidden manna? Where is it hidden? But there's hidden manna. It has something to do with why do you hide in times of trouble. It has something to do with the veil over the Ark of the Covenant. It has something to do with Christ hiding himself as an infant, a child, and a carpenter. Christ says he will give to those who overcome. Can I say that with enough emphasis on the wrong syllable? He will give to those who overcome the hidden manna to eat. And Christ says he will give those who overcome a white stone. And what's on the white stone? Revelation 2.17. On the white stone is written a new name which no one knows except the ones who receive their new names. So Christ is going to name how many people? How many people did Adam name? Or I'm sorry, how many animals did Adam name? Clearly the, the white stone with the new name, that connects us back to Genesis 2.19. So wow, the first Adam names each and every animal. The last Adam renames each and every one who overcomes. Let me say it again. Overcomes, 1 Corinthians 15.45. Again, for today, note that the bread from heaven, the bread of life, is hidden. And the new names are unknown. No one's going to know our new names except you and me and, and Supper Dave. Finally, we'll get rid of Supper Dave. Finally. Can't keep it. He'll get a new name and it won't be that. I guarantee it. And every name is only known by the one who overcomes, who took the white stone. In other words, every name is unique. Psalm 139, 13 through 16 says that each one of us are unique and distinct. We're all different. We're all, there are no, no twins are the same even. They look the same, but they're not the same. Their DNA can be, can be utilized by one of the ones that, uh, you see that happen all the time in in TV shows. But, uh, we're all, we, our thoughts, our movements, no, nobody has the same thoughts and nobody has the same movements. We're all distinct. For most of us, our DNA. And we are made in secret and the Father is in the secret place. Guess where the secret place is? Some people think it's the womb. But he doesn't, he doesn't hand that out that easily. How long will it take Christ to hand out, to name, I'm sorry, to hand out and name? Oh my gosh. How long is it going to take Christ to pass out the white stones and to give us the new names. How fast is the God of creation able to do this? Can he do it simultaneously? Yes, he can. How intelligent was Adam? The first Adam. We can't even imagine it. How fast can the first Adam do it? We know how fast the second Adam can do it, don't we? So again, how long did it take Adam? How much time for Adam to decide the name of, and the unique name of every single animal. And yes, they, I'm absolutely convinced that each animal got its own name. There are two elephants that are named two different names. 
and I hope I, I did my best, but I was trying to get an audible gasp when I mentioned the word overcomes. Good, thank you for pretending. Christ says, He who has an ear, let him hear to those who overcomes. I will give him some of the hidden manna to eat. John 6.51 fits in here. So this is where we go, well, well, well. What have we learned here? Obviously, there's going to be how many people who overcome. Overcome what exactly? What do is it that they're overcoming? Because they're overcomers. What did they overcome? And are there those who don't overcome? And what is it? What is it? What is it that they don't overcome? Jesus did not say to those whom I preselected to overcome. I said I will give. Not I have already given. He didn't say I have already given the new names and the white stone and the hidden manna. He said, I will give it. I will give it. Not now, but I will. In time. Somebody needs anybody on the side of the extremist position of predestination needs to reconcile overcoming capability with the absolute predestination. How do you do that? If, I am pre- if I'm not predestined to overcome, and there's no evidence that you are, but they'll say that you are. I will give, not I have given already before they even were conceived or before they were even formed in the mind of God. Because they overcome by predestination, then he would not have used I will give. He would have said I have given. I will give. And again, notice the element of time. There will come a time when Christ will give white stones, hidden manna, and new names to those who overcome. And overcome is an act. It's an action. It's a process. And I submit that it's tied to belief. I believe that you're overcoming lies. Now, what are the lies? Back to the hedge we go. Back to the kiss we go. Back to the sop. Yeah, okay. It all eventually will come together if I can live long enough. You're overcoming the false doctrines and instead you're believing the truth. You're rejecting the lie of Romans 1, 24 through 25, Revelation 7, 9 through 17, Revelation 24. Those are the ones who did not overcome the lie. But I have instead those who were beheaded, certainly. Those that were beheaded because they wouldn't believe the lie, right? They wouldn't take the mark. They re- they're the, among those who received the hidden manna and the white stone and their new names. Okay, so far all that we have merely touched on, barely addressed, not even measurable, detectable displacement of any kind, is the, the, and that is the naming of the animals on the sixth day. So, so far I can say the naming of the animals on the sixth day occurred because we do not know the capability of Adam. All we can compare it to is the capability of Christ, and of course Adam is a type of Christ. He is not Christ, even though he is a... An incredible typological example. So I think Adam's capability was astonishing and I think that he put on a show for the angels. They had never seen anything like this. To repeat, Genesis 1.24 through 31 ends with very good. I have said this before. Very good. Not good. What occurs on the sixth day is very good as opposed to good. Genesis 1.10, 1.12, 1.19, 1.21, 1.24. 
it then becomes of great value to analyze the differences. What's the differences between very good? Why is very good there? What's the difference between very good and good? Genesis 131 stands out, and we, we need to investigate why that is so. I wish we had time today. Obviously, this is a mountain decline. And, and therefore, I, I'm going to limit my discussion to my favorite, which is Genesis 128. Then, then, what's that? The word then. Then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Who's them in that sentence? Everybody assumes it's who? Adam and Eve. But how many males and females in the animal kingdom do I have? Can they hear God's word? Can they understand God's word in the endemic dispensation? What is the difference between an animal in the first day of creation and an animal today in a fallen world? He opens their mouth, right? Balaam's donkey. We have no idea what those animals could, could do. And we have no idea what Adam could do. We can only take the word for what it says. And he intentionally leaves things out. Why does God intentionally leave things out? So you will do what? Search for him. Absolutely right. You're not going to hand feed us like manna. How did that manna thing work out? They ended up hating it. Okay. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And as you all know, the fallen angels, Jude 6, Genesis 6, 1, saw what they thought was a Psalm 10, 6, 10, 13 situation. What is Psalm 10, 6, 10, 13? That is where Satan says, can't put me in any, any adversity. I'll never be held accountable. They saw that when the multiplication began. So it was a contingency or an opportunity, if you prefer, for the angels. And almost a simile, it almost becomes a precursor to the testing of Christ by the Pharisees. In other words, the fallen angels see what's happening with the multiplication, the multiplication that's happening with the sons of, of the daughters of men. Human beings are multiplying, and the angels see an opportunity. And again, I relate it to the uh, uh, to the testing of Christ by the Pharisees. And though that that comparison comparison is invalidated, but with the fallen angels by by what the fallen angels were able to accomplish. Where am I now? Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and said to them aloud. Who else is listening when he says these things? Everybody's listening. You can't help but listen. God blessed them and said to them aloud. Angels and animals are all there. He says to them, have dominion over every living soul. I'll pause. Every living soul that does what? That moves on the earth. I have motion. And if I have motion, I have time and I have free will. And here is where everyone shouts out differential equations. We need to study differential equations. And we really do. They're so powerful. They describe time, motion, and free will. Every church should be teaching differential equations so that we don't fall into these traps. And I, and I could say this, because now we're leaving Genesis. I could say that I won't. What a terrible... I need a drum. I can't make my hands... Do, I can't make my, my left hands almost completely useless now. It shakes and tremors so much. So that makes my, my banjo playing... And I can't play the banjo anymore. 
much to the delight of everybody. I can still make noise on the trumpet. I could say this. I could say that Gary's question doesn't stand still on the sixth day. It moves. Okay. And the first place it moves to is Revelation 2.17 before Genesis 1.21. And now the central question becomes, when did God speak everything into motion? And I am intentionally implying that it is the voice of God that does this. That's why Christ calls Himself the Word of God. That's why He's called the Word of God. John 1, 1 1-4. So it's the Word of God, John 1, 1 1-4, that caused all things to move, spin, vibrate, and respond to resonance. And that resonance is the voice of God. There has been a debate in physics for many years about does the earth have a resonant frequency. And they're convinced that it does, but they can't find it. That would make sense. Psalm 10.1. Genesis 2.7 And the Lord formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of the spirit of life. Genesis 7.22 And Adam became a living being. He's alive. As God defines life. Does God define predestined, mechanicalized, hopeless and purposeless uh, Machines is life. He does not. Let me repeat that. He says it's a living being by his definition, not the hyper-Calvinist definition of a living being. They don't have a definition of a living being. They've decided all of us are dead. Some of us are condemned, if not most of us. The body was formed, and then after some duration of time, I have made this point before as well, God spoke and motion was revealed. The body moved. As soon as he breathed into the body, it became a living being. And what's the first thing that Adam did? What's the first thing that he did? He thought about something. What did he think about? Moving. And obviously Job 38.7, the faithful angel saw the movement. Ezekiel 1.14. Because angels move. And shouted for joy. It's my humblest of humble opinions that each animal had the same exact process as, as Adam. Now we can argue over the order, but we really don't know the order. God does things out of order, out of our order. We think there's chronological sequencing here, and maybe there is, and maybe there isn't. We have to see where the evidence leads us. But it's my humblest of humble, humble opinions that the animals had the same process. Body form first, Breath of life breathed into their bodies. They had thoughts. Here comes consciousness. And then here comes movement. And then comes free will. They decided where they wanted to go to. And God was delighted. He rejoices over life. He celebrates it. As it applies to humans and animals, death ends the movement of bodies. So when the body is not moving, it's dead unless it's awaiting the breath of the Spirit of life. Life is displayed by motion. Always has been. And motion is tied to time and free will. Gary's question also sends us to the fourth day, as you probably anticipated. The sun, the moon, and the stars. What set these into motion? When were they set? Was everything stationary until he put it all into motion? Or was it done in phases? Was it done progressively? Which would have the most impact on the faithful angels? What made the angels shout? 
They were crazy. What made them do it? And for that matter, the fallen angels. One shouts for joy and the other gnashes their teeth. And I know I'm going to get this question. Hey, HTRP, how about the light that struck the earth? Genesis 1.3. Well, that light is not the same as the sunlight. That light is a person. That's the person of Christ, John 8.12. He's the light of life. He is, his light is not physical. It's not particle. He's spiritual light. Light. Sorry. So don't, don't commingle his light with sunlight or flashlights or electrical light. Next question. Has God ever displayed his ability to interfere in his creation with respect to motion? Has he ever stopped anything? The answer is yep. That would be Joshua. 10, 12 through 13. The sun stood still and the moon stopped. You ever think about that? Did the earth stop? How about the stars? Did he stop everything? Anything else stop? Did the galaxy stop? What God's, what is God saying here at Joshua 10, 12 through 13? What doctrine is this? What are the theological implications of God stopping his clock at Genesis 1, 14 through 19 on the fourth day? So you're going to make a list here. Feel free to compile your list. What are the implications of God stopping the clock? Why did he do it? What is he saying by doing it? What else stopped? Okay? So I want you to think about that. What are, where are we now? The theme has been where there is time and motion, there is free will. got to keep repeating that. And the issue that is free will is repeatedly, overwhelmingly, constantly posited brought forth in Scripture. How can anyone study the Bible and, and conclude that free will is an illusion? It's non-existent. And how, how can they do that? It's stunningly error. It's stunningly in error. It's a horrifying error. It is, uh, I don't even, it's, again, it's, it's fatalism. Those who do it, they've got to approach the subject with stubborn prejudice and presupposition. And I, I might be willing to call it, and I will be, it's delusional. It reaches a state of delusion. I think they know inherently that they're wrong. But they love being wrong and they love their position. They love the little club they're in. And no amount of evidence thrown at them will ever stop them. Note the irony though. Those who cling hopelessly to absolute predestination do so willingly. Anyway, let's attempt to add some more information. That's what we're doing. And the extreme Calvinists are not going to pay attention. They're going to discard it. It's been going on my entire so-called career. Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10. Revelation 2, 23. The heart is deceitful above all and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Christ searches the heart and he tests the mind. Those are the words of the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ, Creator of all things, the Giver of life. John 10.10, John 1.4, John 6.68. That's who said that. I search the heart, I test the mind. Easy, obvious question. Why does Jesus Christ search the heart? Why does he test the mind? He's the only one who can know the heart and the mind. He's demonstrating, obviously. He's testifying of his infinity. Again, though, what's he searching for? What is he testing for? By what standard of logic can the searching of the heart and the testing of the mind of all men and all angels be reconciled with total predestination? If we're all predestined, we're all mechanical, we're all automated, then why does he have to search for it? What is he searching for in our heart? And what is he testing for in our mind? Why bother to test? Why bother to search for something that he caused? That's your position. 
Predestination in its unconditional form is causation. Causation eliminates the reason for testing and, search, and searching. If I cause the problem, I'm not going to... I don't need to search it and test it and find out what I did. I already know what I did. I caused everything. Causation is discordant with investigation and testing. Christ is clearly revealing that as the judge of everything, and the judge of all things, John 5, 22, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, he will collect and present all of the evidentiary information for all the trials to come. He's going to search it all out and he's going to test it all and he's going to present it at trial. The judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10 and the great white throne, Revelation 20.11-14. That's where it will be, be done and everything will be revealed. Every secret thing, whether good or evil, will be shown. Ecclesiastes 12.14. That's what he's looking for. That which is good, that which is evil. What could be the purpose of searching and testing all hearts and minds if the judge is the causing agency? Why separate good from evil if the judge is the source of both? Makes no sense. Certainly something is fundamentally incoherent. Either the Bible is incongruous, incongruous or the doctrines of the hyper-Calvinists are irrational. That's our only choices. Which is more likely, Occam's razor? Let's apply Occam's razor. Which is more likely? What, what explanation explains most of the material, if not all of the material? Occam's razor decides the question. It's the mankind's position that is aberrant. The Bible is the perfect that has come, 1 Corinthians 13.10. Okay, we have come finally, not to the end. We can, finally, we can move to Jeremiah 19.2-5, which is... I don't even know how to describe it. I'll just present it. Jeremiah 19 is so powerful, but especially powerful is Jeremiah 19, 4-5. I would propose that Jeremiah 19, 5 ends this discussion of Calvinism, ends all the discussion, especially this is true of Matthew 20, 15, and Mark 10, 17-18, and John 7, 7 are also brought into the discussion with Jeremiah 19. Remember the pillar of hyper. I'm sorry. The pillar of hyper Calvinism is that God predestined all things, everything, including the premise that God decreed evil. Therefore, God is the author, the one who caused evil, who originated evil. And again, this is not only fatalistic philosophy, but it is categorically refuted in Scripture. No one cares. Very few care. Which is why everyone should memorize. Jeremiah 19.5. I'm going to give you an opportunity. I have not memorized it. I had to write it all down. God is speaking here. It's called the sign of the broken potter's vessel. And we'll get to it on the 10th of September. But we'll start it here. Because they have forsaken me. This is God speaking. Well, quick question. Who has forsaken God? Well, that would be the kings and the people of Israel. Because they have forsaken me. Obviously, the predestined little Israelites have the ability to forsake God. Oh, no. He predestined that they would forsake Him. Then He holds it against them. Because they have forsaken me and made this an alien place, because they have burned incense in it to other gods whom they neither they nor their fathers nor their kings of Judah and have known and have filled this place with the blood of the innocents, so who are the innocents? Well, that's Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. 
They have also built the high places of Baal, Baal Isle, to burn their infant sons, innocent sons, with the fire of burnt offerings to Baal. And there it is. Which I did not command, nor speak, nor did it come from my mind, nor did it come into my mind. That's what God said. All of this evil. And then he said, therefore, behold. So we know something important. The days are coming. That's a time reference. What kind of days are coming? Can we at least agree that the sacrificing of babies is evil? How evil is it? How much evil has happened? Apparently not in this country. We can't agree to that at this time. Our country is becoming dark. The evidence is everywhere. You can't ignore it. But I digress. I could have easily digressed ranted here, but I've got to save that for another day. To repeat, this evil is not commanded. It is not predestined by God. He did not speak it. It never came into his mind. This is a fuselage of questions now that erupt. If this evil is not from God, and it's not, he says it's not from me, is he lying? That's what you have to say if you're a predestinational hyper-Calvinist. Who would dare challenge the beloved HDRP when, he, when I make this assignment? This isn't a little bit of evil here in Jeremiah 19.5. This is unspeakable evil. This is great evil. This is evil that is equivalent to Leviticus 18.21, Proverbs 16.16-19. 16, this is a mount of evil that we can't even begin to calculate. That's how much evil there is. And if God does not predestine Moloch, and he does not, and Jeremiah 19.5, then how much evil must be eliminated from God's predestiny? Because he said, this evil isn't me. never came into my mind. I didn't speak it. I didn't command it. Okay, so we've got to take that evil out, right? If you're a Calvinist, we've got, we've got evil in. Now we've got to take some evil out. How much evil do I have to take out? How much? I see your hands. Obviously considerable, extreme, prodigious, uncountable for mankind and angels, evil. We can't even begin to imagine how much evil was done in Jeremiah 19. So now what do we got? This, well, what we have is this. We have maybe the biggest rut row in all of contemporary church doctrine. So everyone, all of you, I hope you're out there doing it. You should reach for your phones to begin the mathematical because there's always math process of subtracting great evil from predestined decreed evil. Because I need to know. Everybody needs to know how much evil is left if God didn't do this evil. I, I would suggest that when you're starting to do the math, you uh, might, uh, perhaps reflection might be profitable. Is the position of the uttermost Calvinism that God has only has then only predestined some evil? Because you've got to subtract 19:5 of Jeremiah. So what's left? It's not all the evil. So all, he only predestined some of the evil. That's your position now. Partial evil. How much evil is some evil? Then I'm going to ask you again. Always math. I propose that Christ is shouting in John, Jeremiah 19:5. That's his loud voice. Luke 23:46, John 11:43, Matthew 27:50. 1 Thessalonians 4.16. That's the voice of God shouting. It did not come into my mind. I didn't command it. I didn't speak it. It never came into my mind. It's not in my mind. I don't have evil in my mind. How much more definitive do you need? 
And I'm aware of Jeremiah 19.9 and Jeremiah 16.21, the phrases that are rendered, I will cause them. Guess what? That's a Hebrew word. How many times does it come in the Bible? One time. It's only in the Bible at Jeremiah 19.9 and the other word is only in the Bible at Jeremiah 16.21. Only place in the Bible that word occurs. Those words occur. And occur with just one time in the entire Bible. And therefore, what can you not do with them? You cannot accurately translate them conclusively. You can't. You shouldn't. What should you do? You should go back to, I didn't command it. I didn't speak it. And it's never come into my mind. It's never been in my mind. How much time? Who's first? God or time? God is. He holds time in His hand. So for all of time, this had never come into His mind. context of Jeremiah 19 is the doom of Hinnom, the Hinnom Valley, where the evil had become so depraved that God put an end to it. Jeremiah 19.6, 19, 13 through 15. The Valley of Hinnom became a symbol for the lake of fire. Matthew 25.41. That's how he responded to this evil that he did not speak, he did not command, and it's not in him. But for today, let's concentrate on the math because there's always math. We should be able to say that now really quickly. Hopefully everyone sees the futility of trying to subtract sin from God. The easy conclusion then is that God has no sin. That's what He says. I have no. It's not in my mind. I didn't command it. I didn't speak it. It's not in me. He has no sin. He doesn't have some sin. He doesn't have all sin. That's the extreme position. That God is the originator of all sin and He has all sin. If He originates it in His mind before He utilizes it, then it's in Him, right? That's a far extreme. Calvinists, they insist that. He doesn't have some sin. He has no sin. Therefore, there cannot be any predestining of any sin because He doesn't have any. Ever. And repeat Matthew 20.15. The Lord God Almighty Himself, Jesus Christ, asked this astonishing question to the brood of the serpent. Revelation 12.9, Matthew 23.33, John 8.44. Something we've mentioned that I've mentioned in prior lecture. He says this to them, Christ does. Is your eye evil because I am good? I should note that the I am is the ego in me. That's the I am that I am of Exodus 3.14. I am that I am. I sh- is your eye evil because I am that I am good? He did not say, I am a percentage of good. I have some good in me, I've got some bad, it's a little bit of a mix. He doesn't say that. That's just ridiculous. God in the flesh has no sin. He's inspected to see if he had any sin and he was found to have no sin. He's sinless. He's God. Jesus Christ is God and he was inspected and he had no sin in him. If he's the predestination, predestinator of sin, then he would, we would have found sin in him because sin comes from him. That's the position of the Calvinist movement. Makes no sense. If he has none, why would he predestine sin? Can he think of sin? Can God think of sin? If he can't think of sin, can he predestine it? Again, it's discordant, incongruous. It's delusional. And I'm mad about it. And I'm running out of time. 
Where would he who has no sin, who is pure good, 1 John 1, 3-5, where would he get the sin? How would he perceive it? Why would he allow it into his thinking? He won't. It's corruption. He has no corruption. The cup of Gethsemane, on the other hand, is this anomaly that we have to deal with with the heads that kiss the top in the cup. Because he drinks that cup. He's the second Adam. You first for today, just say, from where would evil come from if God did it? Anyway, Mark 10, 17 through 18, God asked another incredible question. Obviously, God always asks incredible questions. Same question, essentially, to the one who came running. There's one who came running to Christ. And that one who came running to Christ knelt before God and asked him, he said to him, good teacher. And God answered, what shall I do that I may... No, I'm sorry. He said, good teacher. What shall I do? That's what this man said. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So he runs to Christ. He drops down to his knees and he says, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds with a question. To the question. He answers the question with a question. Who is Who does that other than Christ? Who always asks questions instead of... What, what a great idea to ask a question for a question. I think that's really a great plan. I should incorporate that sometime. He says this, Christ says, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. God is good. Nothing else is good. Where did evil come from? Did evil come from good? He is the only good, is what he says. Define good. Does good does good have any sin in it? Is good ever the originator of sin? Can good originate sin? If you say it can, then what are you saying about good? It's not good. You can't get sin from you can't get life from non-life, and you can't get sin from good. Well, biogenesis. Does God have any sin? No. John six twenty eight twenty nine. Cleans up all the complaints about Mark 10, 17 through 18. Those that believe in the one sent will receive the new name, the white stone, and the hidden manna. Those who believe. So that's what Christ says to him. Believe that I am God. And here's sort of finally. Define evil eye. The Pharisees did not accept that the one sent who is pure good because their eyes were evil. That's what Christ said to them. Your eyes are evil because I am good. Evil eyes only see evil. They will not and cannot. Romans 1, 24, 32. See goodness, Revelation 13, 4:29. Might I suggest that those who adhere to the concept that all evil is predestined by Jesus Christ, because that's what they're saying, all good is predestined by Jesus Christ. Now they'll say God, but who's God? God is Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, and the Father. The triunity. Those who adhere to the concept that all evil is predestined by Jesus Christ have evil eyes that refuse to see that he is always eternally good. You're on the same camp as the Pharisees. You think evil came from good. And as to the hedge kiss, the hedge says that God predestined salvation and evil. That's what it says. The kiss says, you must forgive me, forgive everyone of sin. And that's Luke 7, 45 through 47. That's the woman that's kissing Christ. And, she, and he says, I have forgiven her sin. So again, the hedge says that God predestined salvation and evil. And the kiss says, thus you must forgive all sin. That's the hedge kiss. Boiled down, the hedge kiss of Satan saying to God that you are the source of evil. Prove me wrong.
And that's exactly what the Calvinists say to me. God is the source of evil. Jesus Christ is the source of evil. The Holy Spirit is the source of evil. Prove me wrong. They say the same thing. And if you cannot refute the position, then you, God, must forgive my evil and therefore forgive all evil. Universalism. And a lot of people believe universalism. Why did Jesus Christ, God, allow the demons to enter the pigs? Where is he going now? How am I doing for time? Am I out of time? Okay. Am I losing the recording? Um, is it still recording? Okay. Why did Jesus Christ, God, allow the demons to enter the pigs? Matthew 8, 28-34. The fallen angels yell out to Christ, Have you come to torment us before the time? Hooray! That's how it fits. They know what time it is, Revelation 12, 12. They know what time it is. Obviously, they did not wish to be sent to the place of torment for demons as a place for torment for demons. They didn't want to go there. The demons begged that, begged that instead they be allowed to inhabit the pigs, right? The, the herd of swine. And God says to them, what? Do it. Go. That's what he says, go, Matthew 4.10. And the pigs immediately... I'm sorry, that's Matthew 8. Look up Matthew 4.10. The pigs immediately run violently to their physical deaths. What did we just learn? Why are pigs unwilling to be possessed by demonic beings? They're unwilling. You try to you try to possess a, a pig, and what's it do? It says no. Did Christ know that the pigs would choose death before demon possession? Did he know that? Oh yeah. Go ahead, try. You want to be in the pigs? Give it a try. Did the demons know it? Nope. The demons begged to go to the pigs, right? In case you think the demons are really 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 amazing, and they are, but there are also some idiots mixed in there. They begged to be allowed to enter the pigs, and clearly they thought it was a beneficial concept. Oh, oops, rut row. The demons did not know the capability of the pigs, did they? Absolutely right. Give yourself an A. Those pigs are complex animals. Their animals are complex living creatures endowed with intelligence, will, emotion. And the pigs instantly rejected the evil. As soon as the evil got into the pig, the pig says, Oh no. What is God saying here? He's giving them a demonstration. He, he would, he's intolerant of evil, isn't he? The demons beg God to leave them with evil. And leave them in evil. Just let us go to the pigs. We'll be evil in the pigs, but it'll be alright. And the people beg God, by the way, gosh, You should know that at the end of this thing, the people that watched the pigs uh, run and die in the, in the water, and they saw the, the two demon, the demons that were in those two men, as soon as Christ did this, what did, the, what did those people do? They came up to him. They wanted to see who he was. They wanted to talk to him. But what did they do? The demons begged to go to the pigs. What did the people do? They begged Christ to do what? Leave. Why would they do that? Well, that's what they did. I got two groups there that say we got to get this is bad. One was the demons, the other were the people. The only one that got it right, pigs. What are the theological implications here? The people beg God to depart from them, Matthew eight thirty four, and God says, "Behold, there's a behold here. It's amazing truth. 
the pigs instantly ran to the physical death. Who has the best testimony? The pigs win. Call that good. I wouldn't call it good. I call it done. Remember now thy Creator In the days of thy youth Before the golden bowl breaks Or the silver cords loosed Before the housekeeper treads are done Remember now thy creator Before the evil days come When the evil days come And the dark years draw nigh When the sun, moon, and stars Give no light to the sky Before you make that last journey On to man's long, long home Remember now thy creator before the funeral bell tolls When the funeral bell tolls And the dark shadows creep And the mourners stand by The closed doors in the street Yeah, that day will soon come In that much you can trust Remember now thy Creator Before the flesh turns to dust For the dust shall go Vanity 
words of the preacher Look to the Savior you must Remember now thy Creator Before you meet him as the judge